Welcome to the Article to Audio podcast brought to you by the NAC team. NAC, N-A-C, stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. The Article to Audio podcast interviews authors who have published research on negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. I'm Michael Gross. I teach in the Department of Management College of Business at Colorado State University. And I'm currently part of a grant and research team with Wendy Adair at the University of Waterloo and her colleagues working with Indigenous employees to understand their experiences with relationships, communication, and conflict in the Canadian workplace. I am your host. Today, we have with us Dale Hample and Jessica Hample. Dale Hample is a professor emeritus of communication at Western Illinois University. He taught there for 35 years and then taught about a dozen more at the University of Maryland. His research has mainly involved interpersonal arguing and face-to-face conflict. He and Judith M. Dallinger developed an extensive program of research on taking conflict personally. For the past several years, he's also been studying how people from different nations understand interpersonal arguing. Jessica Hampel is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. She received her PhD in health communication from Purdue, from Purdue University in 2018. Her research focuses on parental vaccine hesitancy and health-related decision-making. She worked previously at SUNY Oswego in upstate New York for three years and is now beginning her second year as a faculty member at UNK. We will be discussing their article, There Is No Away. Where do people go when they avoid an interpersonal conflict? Today's article is published in Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, Volume 13, Issue 4. Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, or NCMR for short, is the official journal of the International Association for Conflict Management and serves as an outlet for scholars and practitioners who conduct research and negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. Okay, we're going to get started. I just wanted to mention that our guests today were recognized with the NCMR Article of the Year for 2021. Um, Congratulations to you on your award-winning article, and thank you for joining us today for our podcast. Um, Your article is fascinating. I have a particular interest in your topics, so I'm very excited to talk to you about it because I think all of us have experienced uh, the idea of avoidance and being avoided by others and our desire perhaps to avoid other people. So anything to do with avoidance is always an interesting thing to talk about. So Dale, your article, your article with Jessica begins with a story for what brought you to study avoidance in interpersonal conflict. Can you recount the interesting story for our listeners? Yeah, like like all great research, it started with a researcher just wandering around. <laughs> I was teaching a class later in the afternoon, which I was going to explain to the students about distributive and integrative and avoidant tactics. And I was kind of going through in my mind what I was going to say. 
And I realized I had a lot to say about distributive and integrative stuff, you know, win-win, win-loss, mutuality and cooperation, all that good stuff, but that I had very little to say about avoidance. And so I'm thinking, oh, I better, you know, think of some stories here. And uh, uh, my eyes fell on a pair of trash bins in the hall. And one of them is a recycling thing. And it's, it's got, you know, pictures of, you know, plastic bottles, put them in here. And the other one is for trash. It's for uh, uh, other stuff. And on the trash bin, it had a slogan, which I'm sure everybody has seen it. It was throwing that away. There is no away. And I realized that being avoidant in a conflict is kind of in a way. You know, we, we do these studies on, on being distributive or integrative, cooperative or competitive, realistic or unrealistic and all that stuff. And we know that a lot of people avoid, but we acknowledge that, you know, 20% of our sample avoided this and they're just out of the study. And so these, these people disappear, kind of a, a theoretical landfill, if you will. Uh, and, and I thought, well, gee, there, there is no way. They go someplace. They're doing something. I wonder what it is. And so I, I went into class and, you know, I asked that question, had a nice discussion, but uh, it, it, it didn't leave me. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe we ought to engage in a little bit of research and thinking uh, to figure out where people go when, when they go away from a conflict. So that's the story. All right. I like that. Jessica, how do you define conflict? What is, uh, I'm sorry, avoidance. We already know how to define conflict. How do you avoid, how do you define avoidance and what does avoidance mean from your research perspective, particularly in this article? Um, well, the truth is it's kind of hard to define what avoidance is. Mostly we talk about, uh, like you said, what it isn't. So it's not trying to, you know, win the argument, it's not trying to reach a mutually satisfying conclusion, it's not, you know, integrative, it's not distributive, it's not any of that stuff, it's just the other people. Basically, every time you try to look at conflict or argumentation, it gets described as, well, there's the people who do the good thing and the people who do the bad thing, and then there's other people. We'll ignore them. <laughs> um, so, avoidance is really just anything other than invade, engaging in that conflict in that moment. But, so that's sort of what we know about it. But what we're trying to do in this study is look at avoidance as more than just the what you're not doing. So, there is the push there, the conflict itself, the stressful thing that you're trying to get away from. So that is pushing you, but there's also something pulling you, whether it's, you know, going for a walk or turning on the television or whatever it is you're doing instead. So we like to start thinking about avoidance as being both the push and the pull and to start paying a little bit more attention to what is going on with that pull, basically. Very interesting. So as I read your article, you aim to address the question, where do the avoiders go, as Dale just mentioned? So what does that mean? How does that matter, both in a day-to-day -day practical level and in terms of theory and research? Um, well, in terms of what does it mean when we ask where do avoiders go, I guess what we're talking about is 
really what is it they're doing instead? Why is it they chose to do that thing? And, um, or, yeah, so what we found was essentially that they're going somewhere that's not stressed, that's less stressful than the conflict or that helps them de-stress, usually somewhere familiar is what we found. And on a day-to-day -day basis, what that really is going to mean is that everyone sort of has their own preferences. So I might want to go for a drive. My dad might want to go golfing. Someone else might want to go garden, something like that. In terms of theory and research, so that's going to be very hard to figure out because, you know, that's just, that's a list of everything you can possibly do in the world at any given point in time. But as far as theory and research, what we want to do is work on looking at what is it that's making that other thing attractive in some way. Right, and, and uh, we've, we've been talking about as though people go physically, but they also go mentally as well. So they, they can stay in the room and just tune you out. Uh, my late father had 50 years of successful marriage that was completely controlled by two words. Yes, dear. And, and you know, my mom would say stuff and say stuff and he would say, yes, dear. And then keep reading the newspaper. And it really worked great for them. I mean, all my mom wanted was for him to agree with her. And all he wanted to do was read the newspaper. Uh, so you, you don't have to leave the room. You, you can tune out in other ways. Okay. I'm trying to not laugh too much at that. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't know. Um, so, uh, Dale, in your bio that I read earlier in the introduction, you talked about your sort of cultural exploration of arguing. So in Western cultures, it appears, and this is just my <coughs> own curiosity, it appears that avoidance has an association with negative affect and cognition, but that's not always the case. So what are some of the benefits and drawbacks of avoidance that would be in our own Western culture? And what is associated with avoidance from cultures in other parts of the world? What does it look like around the world? Well, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm American and it's hard for me not to be American when, when I think about this. I think in the U.S., if you are avoiding, there's, there's kind of an implication of cowardice sometimes. And that, that's really unfortunate because lots of times uh, avoidance is an excellent idea. Uh, um, and uh, it, it's also a very natural idea. There, there, this wonderful study that a, a man named Bucinich did maybe 30 years ago, uh, where he got about 100 families, I think, in Georgia to invite him to Sunday dinner. And he tape recorded the dinners and went through and paid attention to all of the conflicts and conflict invitations. And he found out that, that some huge number, I think it was more than half, I should have looked it up, uh, uh, somebody would appear to be starting a conflict and everybody would ignore it and that would be the end of it. So somebody would say, green beans again? And nobody would say anything. And that, you know, and, the, and that was it. And so uh, uh, all conflicts don't need to be taken up. And so there, there are benefits to just letting things go. Uh, there are other conflicts that have to be resolved, and uh, there, there could be a drawback to delaying a decision, uh, or it's possible that the other person will think that you're a coward or something like that, and when you finally uh, 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 reinstantiate the conflict, it, it might be worse. Uh, it's, uh, uh, 
evident to me, I think, just basically uh, uh, from from reading and from some research, that all of this is talked about or thought about differently in different cultures. Uh, I've done a, a bunch of studies on, I think, maybe 15 or 20 other nations at this point. And one of the things that I've studied is argumentativeness, which has two scales, two halves to it. One is approach and one is avoidance. And, and so you measure how anxious people are to engage in arguments and also how anxious people are to avoid arguments. Uh, this is an American theory, and when it was developed, approach and avoidance were regarded as opposites. And statistically, if two things are opposite, they should correlate negatively and at a high level, and this happens in the U.S. and a whole bunch of other countries. But there are plenty of countries where approach and avoidance don't correlate at all. They're really close to, to uh, uh, a zero correlation in some countries in which they correlate uh, positively. And I thought I might talk about this. So, uh, uh, for instance, in, in Chile and United Arab Emirates, the correlations between approach and avoidance are close to zero. And in Malaysia and India, approach and avoidance uh, uh, for uh, uh, engaging in an argument are actually positive. And, and so some, some cultures, some nations, they see ways of approaching and avoiding at the same time. Perhaps they, they, they can argue diplomatically or, or with special civility. Uh, and in other countries like the United States and Germany and, and some other places, uh, it's kind of an either or. You either go after it or you go away from it. And, and uh, yeah, I, I find that interesting. And I, I haven't resolved what these other countries think is going on because I'm so American when I try to think about it. Well, I'd like to have a probing question for that. So for our audience who doesn't know, you know research and not familiar with the comments about correlation, does that mean that in Western thinking, we view of approach and avoidance as different, but in some of the other examples you gave, they could be the same. When you say uh, correlation is zero, what does that mean for us? Uh, for it it us means that, that uh, if, if you know that, that somebody is very interested in approaching, you don't know anything about whether they also want to avoid. Whereas in, in the United States, if you know that, that somebody really wants to approach an argument, you know they're very low on avoiding. And if you know they're very low on approaching, they're very high on avoiding. So you can predict one from another. But, but when you've got a near zero correlation, you've just got two things that are independent. What are avoidant behaviors, especially during conflict? I think a lot of us know what we do to avoid, but you know, for those of us that want more ideas about how we can avoid other people, what what are avoided behaviors, especially during conflict? Well, anyone who wants more uh, more ideas about how to avoid other people, just read our paper. We've got a nice long list, and if you need even more ideas, you can just email us because we can come up with plenty. <laughs> um, but there's certainly the obvious ones, the like physically observable ones, like literally leaving the room or uh, just not talking anymore. Not uh, what we found a lot was uh, you can see the conflict coming. So sometimes it's just a question of just not starting that conversation, like a topic I just won't bring up with certain people because I know it'll start a fight. 
we also get things like uh, sometimes there's just outright refusal. Like if you've ever heard the, uh, if you've ever been told or heard the, oh no, you don't talk about politics at the dinner table kind of rules. That's literally a rule that says, no, we are not having that conflict right now, just stop. But then there's also the less obvious ones, um, especially during the course of the conflict. So you can do things to distract the other person, like changing the subject or telling a joke to diffuse the situation. You can uh, do things to distract yourself, like decide that this is a really good time to do your chores or listen to music or think about, you know, what should be on the grocery list, whatever. Uh, you can do things like, or you can do things to kind of what looks like end the conflict, but that don't actually end the conflict. So things like um, pretending to agree or uh, pretending to agree with the other person, like the yes, dear kind of example, or uh, passive aggressively giving in like, oh, all right, but you don't actually agree with them. So this conflict's going to come back in a week anyway. Um Stuff like that, but yeah, in general, it's just literally anything. It could be, you know, something obvious like saying, oh, we're not, I don't want to have this fight right now, or it could be just literally anything else in the world, taking care of the pet snake. Like, there's any list of things that it could be. Sorry, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, that was it. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say, I sometimes call it kicking the can down the road. Yes. Uh, for avoiding conflict. So we, we may have already talked a little bit about this, but I wanted to ha- have uh, see if you could focus really on your findings and what they what do they tell us about where people go when they engage in avoiding during conflict? Uh, well, a simple answer to that is that they go somewhere familiar, whether that's physical. So if you're leaving the room, you're going to go somewhere familiar. Um, if you're avoiding mentally, Uh, And I think we've been talking about this. We may not have made it clear yet that those are not mutually exclusive things. Uh, Certainly, we found people who did all of this stuff together. So avoided physically and mentally at the same time. But if it's physical avoidance, you're, you know, literally removing yourself from the conversation, you're probably going to go somewhere. You're going to go to a familiar place. If it's mental avoidance, Um, If you change the topic, for instance, uh, our participants were saying that they changed it to a familiar topic. If uh, they are thinking about something else, so distracting themselves, they think about something familiar. Basically, that's sort of the overarching thing that we found. So in response to this stressful conflict, people go to something familiar, something that they know how to predict, something that's they have some sense of security and I'll say safety, even though we aren't really talking about physical violence in this study, but, you know, a kind of emotional safety in going to whatever it is that I guess worked last time. Your article also talks about the warning signs that people identify prior to avoiding conflict. And you've kind of mentioned that a little bit sort of what might trigger or signal to a person toward avoiding conflict in the first place. Could you tell us more about this? Yeah, um, uh, first of all, uh, it's very common uh, for these conflicts not to happen. Uh, Something like 40% of the conflicts that we analyze, people said, well, it never really quite started. 
Uh, and so naturally we followed up on that. Uh, some people recognize a topic as, as something that, that's just going to create a, a fight. And a lot of families right now, you just don't talk about politics. A lot of families for the last 50 years, you just don't talk about abortion. And, you know, so the, the, the topic it, itself. Also, we discovered that a lot of the conflicts that we were studying are, are what's called serial arguments. Uh, a, a serial argument is one that recurs in a relationship. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it would be a whole different podcast to talk about serial arguments, but having an argument over and over again is not a problem. Uh, uh, they're, they're, uh, think of a newly married couple and they're talking about, should we have babies? You're not supposed to settle that in five minutes. You're supposed to settle that in six months or a year or two years. And it's going to come up over and over again. Uh, and, and so it's not merely the topic. It's the recognition that this is our conflict. And sometimes uh, you just don't want to do it right now and you put it off, but it's not a big deal because, you know, you haven't talked about it for a couple of weeks anyway. So a day or two won't, won't matter. Beyond those kinds of recognitions, there's a whole bunch of stuff that Jessica and I suspect is kind of nonverbal. Uh, where, where you recognize that, that the other person might be angry or that there may be some, some threat coming up. Uh, the two main threats that we found were threats to your, my self-image. You know, I see you're going to get on me and I'm getting out. Uh, or threats to the relationship, something that could damage our, our friendship or our, our workplace relationship. And those were the two biggest things that people were sensitive to and, and uh, would avoid. Um, violence does appear in a way in our study. Uh, there, there wasn't very much physical violence. I mean, there, there wasn't a single fistfight or anything like that in our more than 400 start stories. Uh, but a lot of uh, people thought they saw it coming. Uh, they, they thought that uh, uh, violence, uh, uh, where, where was our number? Um, they thought that physical violence was possible in 18% of the uh, things they reported on, and they thought verbal violence was possible in about 60%. And they thought that emotional violence was actually present in about 60%. So, so people are alert to violence or escalation or, or something like that. And uh, um, uh, there, there are a few people who thrive on that and will just dive in with, with both fists. But uh, when you're doing a study on avoidance and you're asking people to, to report on things you avoided, uh, uh, it was very common for people to say, oh, yeah, I saw that coming and I got out. Uh, so uh, th those, those are the kind of warning signs. And it's not so much that, you know, we, we discovered anything radically new, but we're documenting it. We're showing people what the percentages are. And, and we're giving some examples and kind of putting it together in, in uh, uh, one place. You mentioned a little bit about emotion. So yeah. what guidance can you give our listeners about their felt experiences of conflict um, that people thought they should avoid before they appeared, really developed, or got worse? 
Well, uh, I, I think um, people are trying to avoid hurt. Uh, they, they don't want themselves to be hurt. They don't want the relationship to be hurt. And they also had the opportunity to say that they didn't want to hurt the other person, but that was like 5%. Uh, yeah. So there, there, there seems to be a lot of self-orientation in, in the uh, avoidance uh, decisions. Yeah, what we should say is one thing it does not appear to be is it doesn't seem to be any feelings of inadequacy. The uh, respondents were saying that they felt like they did have enough information to have the argument if they wanted to. They felt like they could have put together good arguments if they wanted to engage in this conflict. So it was people saying, well, I could have done this and I could have done this conflict well, whatever that means to them, whether they were taking an integrative or distributive approach, whether they wanted to settle it or win it, whatever that meant to them, they felt like they could have done it. They just chose not to in that moment for whatever reason. And we haven't, I don't know that we really got into that very much because I'm not sure if we were necessarily expecting that finding that they would say, oh yeah, I definitely could have, I just didn't. Um, but it does seem it kind of changes at least how I was thinking about avoidance and that this isn't a thing where, and maybe this is the American in me that kind of thinks, well, you know, if you think you can win, if you think you can settle this conflict, get a good outcome from it, then why wouldn't you do it? But it turns out there are any number of reasons that you still wouldn't, is what we were finding. Thank you to our guest today for an engaging conversation. For more information about this episode, we hope you'll check out the podcast notes at the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictteam.com. That's one word, negotiationandconflictteam.com. There you can find additional sources and links to material cited in this episode. Special thanks goes out to Dr. Chi Wang, Editor-in-Chief of Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, for her support and assistance with this podcast. On behalf of our podcast team, Ming Hong Tsai, Laura Reese, Jennifer Perlamas, Michael Gross, that's me, and Deborah Tsai, thank you for listening. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion that brings us from article to audio.